right, I want to tell you guys about a couple pet peeves of mine, okay? And these two pet peeves I'm going to tell you guys about, they're rooted in individualism, okay? So I don't know if you know this, but our culture is rooted in individualism. And because of that, even my pet peeves at times are rooted in my individualism, right? And when I say individualism is, I mean, our culture is geared to us thinking about ourselves, that the world revolves around us. It's geared towards you, you, you. And so unfortunately, I grew up in this culture and because of that, even my pet peeves are affected. I have individualistic pet peeves. Here's one of them. I, I don't like when someone has my same name, okay? I don't like, I know it's stupid. It's stupid. I don't, I don't mean my whole name, okay? I just mean my first name. If someone has my exact first name, someone is named Anthony and they're in the room or at the same thing, I'm like, I don't like this. In fact, there's even like an animosity I have for that other Anthony. I'm like, I don't like you, man. I don't know what you're about. I don't, I want to be, and part of that is, is because of my rugged individualism. I want to be a special, unique snowflake. And I don't say that facetiously. I actually want to be. I want to be this unique, special thing. Thank God, growing up, I never had another Anthony in any of my classes, right? I think all the Jessicas in the room are like, ah, I know how you feel. You'll get through it. There was a kid at my school named Anthony Vargas Frank. I didn't like him, though. Um, and it was just because this is a weird pet peeve I have based on my individualism. Okay, a second pet peeve I have based on my individualism. I, I don't know if you're in this scenario or if you could relate to the scenario. You're at a restaurant. You're ordering with friends. Your friend orders right before you. They order what you were just about to order. Something in me panics. I go, I can't, we can't order the same thing. That's not okay, even though the restaurant is perfectly happy with that. So I, when that person orders the same thing that I was just about to order, in my head, there's a 14-second scramble where I try to remember everything on the menu and go, what else could I order? What else could I order? And I try to order something different. It's silly. But individualism in our culture, how our culture is aimed towards you, that you're the hero of the story, how advertising is aimed towards you, you're the hero of the story, affects even my pet peeves. But sometimes our individualism also affects how we read the Bible. Like the, we begin to go to the Bible and we begin to go, hey, how... How do I be the hero of the story? Now, some of us might not blatantly think about it that way. We might not blatantly go, hey, I'm reading this to find out how I'm the hero of the story. But it's a little bit more insidious. We might go to the Bible and we go, hey, how is this going to build me up? How is this going to make me strong? How is this going to make me better? Now, that's not always a bad thing to ask, but sometimes it is. Sometimes when that's how we approach the Bible with this rugged individualism, with this idea that we're the hero of the story, we're going to completely miss what God is trying to speak to us. Because often God isn't trying to form a whole bunch of individuals, but he's trying to form a people. God wants to form an identity in us collectively as a group. He doesn't want a bunch of super individuals. He wants us to represent him in the world in all our unique ways together joined as a body. And so we're in this book of Nehemiah throughout this summer, taking a little break from John. We'll be back in John in the fall. But we're in this book of, uh, of Nehemiah in the summer. And what we're, gonna, what we're seeing in the book of Nehemiah is God wants to form a people 
not just a bunch of individuals. And so as we look at this work of Nehemiah, what we have to realize is God wants to form us together collectively. That part of Nehemiah's rebuilding process for the people of God in his day was helping them understand they were that, the people of God. That they were so joined together that without one another, they're not really the people of God. And what we saw last week is, in particular, Nehemiah is asking the question, what does it mean to be the people of God in times of danger and in times of discouragement? In Nehemiah's day, the danger was they were the small minority people in a large pagan empire that had much more influence on them than their God. The discouragement for them was they were a scattered people. They were all over the place. They were no longer even really occupying the land that they had originally been given by God. They were occupying other places. Other countries had come in and kidnapped them. And so they were discouraged to a point of going, are we really even God's people? All those things, all those prophets said, all those things Moses said, is it even true? And so Nehemiah is attempting to answer the question, what does it mean to be God's people in times of danger and in times of discouragement? And today, what we're going to see is that God's people are a people, not a bunch of individuals. uh, individuals. And hear me, there's aspects of individualism that I think are good and okay, but when it begins to affect your pet peeves a little bit too much, you might be too affected by the culture's individualism. When it begins to affect how you read scripture, it's probably not good for you. And so here's my hope for today, is we're gonna be in Nehemiah's chapter two and three. We're gonna read a lot of both of those chapters, but I'm gonna summarize uh, some parts of those chapters for, for time's sake. And what we're gonna look at is these different characteristics of God's people. We're going to stop at three different moments throughout chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to look at these characteristics of God's people in these times of danger and times of discouragement, and we're going to uh, allow even that observation uh, of, of the characteristics of God's people in Nehemiah's day to kind of wash over us, to help us realize the sort of identity that we are supposed to have as God's people. Now remember, Jesus has grafted us in to the people of God. That's why we can look at the the characteristics of God's people in Nehemiah's day, and although the context is different, the, the principles are the same. The vocation, the identity that we have as God's people is very often the exact same thing. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into Nehemiah's chapter 2 and 3, and we're going to stop at three different points and look at three different characteristics of God's people that I want for us here in this room, in this local church body, in this local people of God, okay? So let's hop into it. I'm actually going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 11, the second half of it. We saw last week Nehemiah prays this prayer. He, he hears about Israel. He's, he's saddened about the state that Israel and Jerusalem in particular is in. And he prays this prayer. And I left at, off at the end of the prayer. And we're going to start on the second half of verse of 11 of chapter 1. And I'm going to read through that first section of chapter 2. It says this. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. 
And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's stop there for a bit. So we find out Nehemiah is a cupbearer, okay? We know from watching like old medieval type movies, the cupbearer was like this person who would drink the king's cup before he drank it to make sure it wasn't poison. So the cupbearer would drop dead before the king would drop dead. But in Nehemiah's day, the cupbearer was more than that. Sure, that was part of the cupbearer's job, but the cupbearer was like a paid friend, okay? This is a prestigious job in Persia at the time. He was a paid friend. So not only was he a paid friend who was expected to be kind of like excited and happy at these different dinners and gatherings, but he was also uh, the one that would pick out the wine. So this guy was like a professional wine taster more than likely. So he's going around the land and he's figuring out what's the best wine. He's bringing in the 585 BC whatever over to King Artaxerxes. And he's saying, hey, this is the best wine. And so they would hang out. And so cupbearers in that day were known to party. They were known to to be fun people. And so this Nehemiah has this pretty sweet job where he gets to hang out with a really rich guy, picks out the wine he drinks and whatever he drinks and probably some of the food too. And Nehemiah himself is probably rich, right? Someone in rags isn't going to be hanging out with the king. Nehemiah probably lived in or near the palace because, again, he's the cupbearer of the king. He needs to be close by whenever the king needs him. And so this is what we find out about Nehemiah. And so a few months after this prayer that took place in chapter 1, Nehemiah is hanging out with the king. And he's, I think, being led by God to allow his sadness to be shown to the king. And so Nehemiah sat before the king. The king notices it. I think he notices it because they're friends. And, and because the king isn't used to Nehemiah acting this way. And so the king goes, hey, what's going on? And Nehemiah just goes, hey, my, the place I'm supposed to be from, the place my ancestors are from, it's in ruins. There's no walls. There's nothing there. And the king knows that Nehemiah wants to do something about it. So the king says, what do you want to do? And Nehemiah says, I want to go there and I want to rebuild it. I want to restore my people. I want to restore that land. The king says, okay. Nehemiah gets bolder. He goes, I also want you to pay for it. The king says, okay. And so we have this this very uh, interesting scene written from like his perspective about how that went down. And we see that he was even afraid to ask because this isn't something you really ask kings. Right? And here's the other thing. If you're paid to be the partier with the king, my guess is you're going to stop getting paid if you're sad around the king. 
And so that's why we see this moment where Nehemiah is sad before the king. The king's like, what's going on? And Nehemiah's like, and that's when I began to freak out. And that's when I got scared. Because kings back then, if they're unhappy, they, they just might kill you. At the very least, banish you out of there. Leaving Nehemiah destitute. But he feels so led by God that he wants to take up this project this project of rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem in a lot of ways and the people of Jerusalem. What, what we have to see before we look at a characteristic of God's people, for Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls wasn't just rebuilding a nation. Here's our problem. When we read the book of Nehemiah, we go, oh, that's nice. Like he was just rebuilding these walls. It's just part of what a nation needs. They need to be safe, right? And that's part of it. But for Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls was rebuilding the people of God, right? Rebuilding the walls was, was actually being a display person saying, hey, my God is real, and he, we are his people. And so this task, this project of rebuilding the walls, it wasn't just like, hey, let's rebuild the walls. We need to be safe. It was, we need to rebuild God's people. So in the midst of this first little section that we just read, there's a characteristic of Nehemiah, and it's really a characteristic you see of God's people throughout Scripture that's a characteristic that I want us to deepen in here, and I always want us to, to realize is a characteristic for us as God's people too. And it's this, God's people choose sacrifice over comfort in order to love well. Okay, God's people choose sacrifice over comfort in order to love well. Remember, Nehemiah has this dream job. He's the cupbearer of the king. He's rich. Like, he, get, he gets paid to hang out with a rich guy and drink wine, okay? I love my job as a pastor. But if, if one of the Phoenix Suns said, hey, I'm going to pay you to ball out with me, I'd be like, I got to do it maybe, <laughs> And yet Nehemiah, who's in this situation, and he sees his people in a certain situation, what he could have done was go, ah, it's a shame about Jerusalem. Eh, maybe God will do something sometime. But instead, Nehemiah, who'd been fervently praying, takes it upon himself to get to work and ask the king that he could do this work, work on this project of rebuilding Jerusalem. Nehemiah chooses to sacrifice this cushy life, this dream job, his wealth, his identity. Because here's the reality. Come on. The king's going to fill the cupbearer position. Who's to say that cupbearer doesn't come in and balls out better than Nehemiah? Nehemiah was risking a lot. He was sacrificing a lot in order to love God and love his people well. Could you, could you imagine like being so grieved by the state of God's people that you were sitting there in your dream job, or let's say it's not a dream job, but just a really, really well-paying job with a, a lot of prestige around it. Could you imagine being so grieved by the state of God's people that you would give that up in order to love God's people, serve God's people, Protect God's people from the danger. Encourage God's people where they're discouraged. Could you imagine doing that? 
I don't, know, I don't know if we all would do that, but that's what Nehemiah does. He chooses sacrifice over his own comfort in order to love God and love his people well. This needs to be our character as a church. We should be quicker to choose sacrifice over comfort in order to love this body well and really love the world well. I actually think you guys do this. I actually think you guys do this a lot. I, I really, as I look out at our church and I see the different things you guys do, I think constantly I'm amazed by the fact that so many of you choose sacrifice over comfort in order to love well. Like I'm even thinking of yesterday, uh, we had this second Saturday type of event where the school I used to work for, they needed to move out of their building. They just needed a whole bunch of help. And we, we found out about it like nine days ago or something like that. And so we put out some feelers and some different leaders in our church were like, hey, here's something going on. Can you help? And I'm just seeing all these pictures and even Gretchen G is exposing me, showing my old PE teacher photos on Facebook. Uh, and so, and, and just, there was this group of people from our church that's out of nowhere just said, yeah, we're going to move on a Saturday. We're going to help this school move out on a Saturday. You guys choose sacrifice over comfort. My Saturdays to me are pretty sacred and I try to guard them well. And yet so many of you, the way you want to live out your Saturday is sacrificing your time. It was hot yesterday too. Sacrificing your comfort in order to love well. I even just think of offering at church. Isn't, it, isn't offering just like a crazy thing? Like if you're not a Christian, you didn't grow up with that, it's like a crazy thing. Like we have these two black boxes and we have an online way and some churches pass the plate and, and, and a group of people that love the Lord sacrifice their own finances so that we could be loved in here, right? Loved by each other, that we could worship well. And I think when we worship, it helps us to see how much God loves us. But that's just something you guys do. I don't even push it that hard. We talk about it as a response time every week, but I'm not just sitting here doing sermon after sermon about giving, and you guys just sacrifice your finances in order to love well. I love this. I love you guys. I love how constantly I'm just watching you guys choose sacrifice over your comfort. That for you, your identity is not being found in how comfortable you can be, but your identity is found in Christ who sacrificed himself, and so you make sacrifices yourself. But even so, even so that you guys do this well, I want us to deepen this in our midst. And even as our church, and we talked a lot about this last week, even though our church, and I think really the church in this country, it finds itself in times of danger in different ways, in times of discouragement in different ways. Even though we find ourselves there in those times, what we need to do is deepen our identity as the people of God. And one of the ways that we need to deepen our identity is to choose sacrifice over comfort in order to love well. Even though so many of us in here do that, I think we can press into it even a little bit more. Here's a good test to see if, if for the people of God, we would choose sacrifice over comfort in order to love well. And this is an illustration that I'm slightly altering from another pastor at another redemption. But he said this, say you had a kid. So if you don't have a kid, say you had a kid. Imagine it, okay? Imagine you have a kid, okay? So stop freaking out. But just imagine you had a kid. The kid grows up, goes through medical school, becomes a doctor, 
And this kid, she decides, uh, she has a choice actually. She can choose to get a job at this prestigious hospital in the country. And, and, and she'll be a prestigious doctor, she'll make a lot of money and, and all that kind of stuff. But she comes to you one day and she says, Mom or Dad, like, I, I actually feel called to this little remote village. And it, it, the reason I feel called is there's this disease I specialize in that's in this remote village, and it's full of orphans and widows, and there's really, it's not really even a large village, but they just keep getting slammed by this disease, and I think I'm the only person that can take care of this disease in the city, but what that means is I'm not going to be paid very much. I'm going to be paid maybe even barely minimum wage. And imagine your kid came to you and said that. How would you as a parent react now listen, it's not wrong to have the prestigious job in the hospital. God has that for people in times and places and seasons. But if your kid, who is a child of God, came to you and said, hey, I feel like I need to make this sacrifice in order to love well, what would your reaction as a parent be? And if your reaction is, no, take this job at the prestigious hospital, and not the job in the village where they're not paid very much and they're in danger. I just wonder how much more this idea of God's people sacrificing their comfort in order to love well, I just wonder how much that's ingrained in us. I want this to deepen in us. When we're in these times that the church is in and we're even in this kind of rebuilding phase as a church in certain senses ourselves, this needs to be one of the characteristics we look to deepen in our lives, okay? All right, let's keep going in the story. I'm going to summarize the next few verses. Um, essentially, Nehemiah begins this journey. He starts going towards Jerusalem, and he gets there, and different foreign leaders are, are not really happy he's there. And so Nehemiah goes out in the middle of the night once he gets to Jerusalem, and the king even had sent a battalion with him to, I think, protect him. And he gets out, and he's looking at the wall and all the gates of Jerusalem at night, and he just sees how broken down they are, and he kind of just begins to survey the problem. He begins to survey the project that he's about to undertake. And then it picks up in verse 16 as he kind of gathers all the people together. Verse 16 of chapter 2 says this, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to, <clears throat> to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, a few verses. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hashanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. 
And we'll stop there. And the rest of chapter 3 is just different people, different families, different groups uh, building the, the wall, building uh, the gate. And so what we just saw is Nehemiah goes, he surveys the work, and then he announces to the people why he's there. I'm sure people were wondering. Some people might have known he was the former cupbearer of the king. They saw this battalion with him, and he goes, here's the deal, guys. God is guiding me to come back and rebuild Jerusalem. You see, when he mentions that idea of of Jerusalem being in derision, he really thinks God is in derision. An important component for God's people back then was that the witness of God was clear to the world. The display of God was clear to the world. And so with the capital of God's people, Jerusalem, in ruins, he felt like, man, people aren't seeing God for who he really is. And so he invites people to do the work, and it's awesome. They just go, yeah, let's do this. It sounds like God is moving. Let's strengthen our hands to do this good work. There's some opposition, but they all get started working as we saw. And this is the characteristic of God's people that I want us to hone in on. The second one here, it's this. God's people strive to be his hands and feet. Okay, God's people strive to be God's hands and God's feet. I love that in chapter 1, we we see this prayer, and at the beginning of chapter 1, it says it was the month of Kislev. And then in chapter 2, it goes in the month of Nisan. In the uh, Hebrew calendar, however you want to count, it's three or four months in between those times. And what I imagine is for three or four months, Nehemiah must have been praying a sort of prayer like the one we saw in chapter 1. Going, God, we want to turn back to you. God, we want to be your people. God, your, your city is in ruins. What are we to do? And then as he's before the king, he knows what he's supposed to do. He knows what God is leading him into. And Nehemiah is not just satisfied not doing the work that God would do with his hands and his feet. God's people strive to be the hands and feet of God. And for Nehemiah, it started in deep prayer over, I think, months. And throughout this process. Another thing I love and why I began to read part of chapter 3 is you just get all these names of all these people doing all sorts of, of, of work. And it teaches us something really important about God. God works in history through your hands. That's a, that's a divine mystery. I'm not trying to rhyme here, but I did. But it is a divine mystery that God works in history through human hands. Right? He works in all sorts of ways throughout history, but one of the ways that God works through history is through your hands. And so as we can look at all these names throughout chapter 3 of Nehemiah and go, well, what's the point of that? The point is God worked through them to bring about his redemptive purposes, to bring about redemption for all. God works through our hands, and because he works through our hands, God's people always strive to be his hands and his feet. Right? Nehemiah didn't just get puppeted by God. Nehemiah said, I think this is the right thing to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to move through me. And then he began to do that work. The people he invites into it, they probably didn't have these months of prayer like Nehemiah did, and yet they said, let's put our hands to this good work. They understood 
that God very often worked through their hands and their feet. God's people strive to be the hands of God. I think sometimes when it comes to our faith, we're, we're not striving to be the hands and feet of God. We're not striving to say, hey, what does it mean? What would God do with my hands in this world? We're just really striving to be the best worshipers possible. Now listen, a worshiper of God is, I think, fundamental to our identity as Christians, as humans, really. I can show you tons of sermons where I say just that. But sometimes that's, that's all we focus on. We just want to be really good churchgoers. We just want to be really good singers. We just want to put a really good Sunday show on. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but when they're done in a way that stops us from looking at our world and saying, what does it mean for me to be the hands and feet of God in this world? I think we're losing something. We're missing something. God wants to work through our hands and our feet, and that's how God moves in this world. And it's this divine mystery where he has us even examine situations we're in and ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for God to take these hands in my life, and what would he do with them? How would he love? How would he work on projects? What would he do with my hands and my feet? God's people should always strive to be his hands and his feet. So this is what that means. That at times, the way that God wants to love the world is through your hands. At times, the purposes of God will come about through your hands. Okay, hear me. Don't become megalomaniacs on me, okay? Because sometimes people take these ideas and they become megalomaniacs. Don't, Don't do that. Because very often, God has ordinary, mundane, even boring work. And that's the way he wants you to love the world and care for the world and be his hands and feet in the world. Right? All of us want to be Nehemiah, but guess what? I think everybody in this room, we are all chapter three. Names I can't even read right. That's who we are. God has ordinary work for us, but it is the very work of God, right? Sitting down with a widow or a widower every week for 20 years isn't very prestigious, but it is the very work of God at times. Seeing someone here sitting by themselves and saying, hey, I'm going to go befriend that person isn't this big, prestigious work, but it's the very work of God at times. And so sometimes for us, what we have to realize is God is working in the mundane. That simply we all have different lives and we need to ask the question in our life, what does it mean for me to use my hands and my feet the way God would if he was living my life? How would he do that? Uh, Spoiler alert, Jesus is a great way to figure this out. As he had hands and feet, and he was God. So God's people, throughout time, throughout history, we strive to be his hands and feet. We look at the world in front of us, and we say, hey, what does it mean for me to be his hands and feet? 
Now, I want to read a few verses in the middle of chapter 3. I know I said it's a bunch of names, but there's some details in these few verses that, that stand out to me, and, and I, I can't get away from reading them. It's going to be in verse 10, so we'll hop down to verse 10. Again, they're, they're talking about the different people doing different sorts of works on the wall, what parts of the wall they're making, what gates they're making. It says this. Next to them, Jedediah, the son of Harumomp, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pathamoab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloesh, uh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Okay, we'll stop there. A few details that stood out to me. You have everybody joining in. Right? It sounds like whole families are joining in at different parts. You've got leaders joining in at different parts. Uh, you, you've got people um, building opposite their house. Did you notice that detail? Like there's some of that said, hey, this gate, this wall, it's right here in front of my house. I'm just going to build right in front of my house. I feel like I'm responsible for this part right in front of my house. And then you even have people building the dung gate. I, I really, I just wanted an excuse to read dung gate at church. But the dung gate is probably what it sounds like, right? Like, listen, the way we get rid of dung in this city, we have sewers. It's amazing. Or different things can happen if it's animal dung or whatever. But back then, they didn't have as good of things. So they said, hey, listen, we're not going to take dung out all of our gates. we got to pick one gate so the dung can go out there and we can just know that's the nasty gate, okay? Like, that's the, like, stay away from there, all right? And so somebody even had to build the dung gate. Which, which means, by the way, part of God's redemptive plans for the world was to get the dung gate rebuilt. Just interesting. <laughs> and so through all those names, all those details, all those little things, there's a characteristic about God's people that I see that I, I want us to cling to and remember in here. And it's this. God's people play their part with their giftings. God's people play their part with their giftings. Too often, I think, we want like a, super, a superstar faith, right? I grew up in college and something on the wall in the place where our Christian club hangout was like something like to change the world, like you're going to be a world changer or something like that. Now, it's not bad to want to change the world. We see the world, we see how broken it is, and we go, hey, I want to change it. The problem with that is, is sometimes it's so rooted in that individualism that I was talking about. And we highlight certain activities as being world-changing activities, and we say other things are not world-changing activities. But God's people play their part with their giftings. Part of our job as his people is to go, God, where have you gifted me? What sort of ways am I gifted to build up the people of God? What sort of ways have you gifted me in order to love this world well? What sort of ways have you gifted me in order to help bring about your restoration? That's what we do as God's people. We play our part with our giftings. I love that little detail, opposite his house. And I think it happens a few times in chapter 3. 
This guy just said, hey, I'm going to just repair opposite my house. He saw this work that needed to be done in front of him. He said, I can do it, so I'm going to do this. God's people play their part with their giftings. This is another thing I love about you guys. I feel like you guys get this. I feel like you guys understand it. And so you might be saying, Anthony, why are you making all these points about uh, that we're doing well? Well, the the reason is because sometimes we need to be encouraged as well. I think that you guys do this. Like, I've been in uh, a a lot of different church cultures growing up and throughout my life. And in this church, there's just like this understanding that we all have a part to play, that we all have unique giftings, that we all have different ways to serve the body and be in the body. And we're not all chasing after the thing that's like perceived as the best or even spoke about as if it's the best. In other churches I've been part of, that's just not the case. There's a lot of fighting for power. There's a lot of church politicking. The worst is there's always like a handful of people that feel like they're really good at stuff that they're not really good at. That's the worst. We've all sat in those small groups, right? (laughs) But in here, I've just noticed time and time again, you guys know your giftings and you play your part. Another beautiful thing that I've noticed you guys do is not only that, sometimes you come in and you join our church and you're newer to our church and instead of saying, hey, I used to do this at my old church and I'm gifted in that way, sometimes you even go, what do I need to do here? What's needed in this body? How can I serve this body? I feel like that's a moment of you looking opposite your house and saying, hey, I'm just going to help where I need to help. I love this about you guys. But as we are in this time of rebuilding as a church, as we're in times of danger in our culture, in times of discouragement in the church, we have to hold on to this piece of our identity as God's people. We collectively play our part and know our giftings. We are a body. We are God's people together. We are not a bunch of individuals with superstar gifts. We're a bunch of people building the dung gate. If we get to heaven and they say, Redemption Flagstaff, all you guys did was build a porta potty, I'd be like, yes. I'd be fine with that if that's what God has for us. So, We've looked at all these characteristics of God's people, and we could go away, and we could go, yeah, let's do it. This is great. We can be God's people and do all this. Now listen, if we just root how we be God's people and just us trying really hard, that's not all bad, and I think there's a place for that in our faith, but we'll be missing a huge part of all this. How we're rooted as God's people is really in Jesus, and Nehemiah's day, it was in God and in this promise, really, of the Messiah coming even. But for us, on the other side of Jesus, we get to be rooted in all of this as God, uh, by being rooted in Jesus. We get to be God's people because of what Jesus did. And so for us to live out these characteristics well, what we need to do is not just like willpower ourselves into doing it. What we have to do is realize that Jesus embodied all these characteristics in order to love us, in order to save us. And so we can live this out because Jesus loved us first. Because Jesus lived this out first. Because Jesus embodied all of these characteristics first. Think of Jesus. He lived a life of sacrifice. I don't know if you know where Jesus lived before coming to earth, but it was heaven. Okay? It was the presence of God. 
that's the best place, okay? I guarantee you the best place in the universe is with the presence of God. That's where Jesus lived. He gave that up. He gave that up. He made a sacrifice in order to love well. He came and he said things like, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And he did that to reach you and me. He did that to help restore this world. Not to mention that Jesus himself became the ultimate sacrifice, dying on the cross for our sins that had to be a little bit uncomfortable. In order to love us well, Jesus chose time and time again sacrifice in order to love well. This is why we can be rooted in this. This is why we can accept Jesus' invitation to pick up our cross and follow him. Another thing that Jesus did well is he, he was God in the flesh, right? So Jesus says, God in the flesh, he took on literal hands and he took on literal feet. So Jesus didn't strive to be the hands and feet of God. Jesus had the hands and feet of God. Jesus has the feet and hands of God. That's who Jesus is. And he took on hands and feet in order to love us well, in order to restore us, in order to disciple us, in order to teach us, in order to draw us in, in order to restore the world. So we get a great glimpse of what God would do with his hands and feet because God does have hands and feet. And his name's Jesus. Jesus also understood his role as the son of God where he used his gifts to disciple and restore his kingdom, where he walked a path for us in order to restore us and draw us into you. Jesus knew his role as the son of God and what he was supposed to do with that. And so as we go through the book of Nehemiah, and as we're looking at these characteristics, uh, characteristics of God's people, let us not just try really hard to do it. Let us look to Jesus and see how he's done those things and really that, realize that that is part of our very identity as God's people in this time and this place. Amen, church? Amen. May we be that people. Pray with me. God, may we be people that choose sacrifice over comfort. God, may you make us your hands and feet. God, may, we, we, may you help us understand what you've gifted us with and may we play our part. God, help us to be your people. Help us to seek you. Help us to know you. Help us to live out this vocation we have as display people, as people that are called to display who you are in the world. May we look at the projects of our day the projects that rebuild your people or help bring better witness to your name, God. May we look at those sorts of projects and may we undertake them. God, may you give us, would you anoint us, God, in a way that we could look at our own hands, we could look at our own worlds, and we could say, what would God do with my hands in this world? And may we do it. Holy Spirit, as we step into this, you know better than we know that that's going to uh, face opposition and there's going to be difficulties in that. And I just ask that you are our comforter through that. I ask that you empower us in that. I ask that you give us strength in that because, God, we don't want to be doing anything you're not leading us into. We don't want to do anything that you would not have us do. So, God, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Help us to become 
more deeply your people in the ways that you want us to become your people. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.